if you would, take your Bible and turn over to the book of Jude once again. <clears throat> and, of course, the first chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. We've already looked at verses 1 through 3, but I'm going to read first four verses we get started. It says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I simply titled this tonight, Beware of Apostasy. Beware of Apostasy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege of ours to open your precious word whereby we can be instructed, encouraged, and challenged in our walk with you. And Lord, we pray that you would just speak to our hearts and uh, you would glorify tonight and help us just to obe be obedient and keep the faith that's been once delivered, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beware of apostasy. You know, what is apostasy? Well, the, the word apostasy is not found in the English Bible. But it's used, it's the Greek word apostasy is used two times in the received text. Uh, and it's translated uh, forsake in Acts chapter 21, verse 21, where, where, where the Jews accused Paul of forsaking the law of Moses. It's also used in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, and there it's translated in English falling away. So the, the word apostasy, as we use it, really means a falling away, a desertion. Be like a, it's a defection from the truth. It's like a soldier that defects. Uh, we had one of those here not too long ago, too many years ago. You know, we have, um, in one of those nice uh, exchanges we had for, uh, that Obama made. But anyway, uh, that's what an apostasy is. It's a falling away. And, it, and it's, it's a willful departure from the truth. You know, Peter tells us in Second Peter, I think it's chapter three, that they were this they were willingly ignorant of, and talking here about the flood, they're willingly ignorant of it. So, as we think about it, and this is what Jude is warning us about: is the apostasy. You know, he he said, "I gave all diligence." You know, he had purpose and planned on writing about the common salvation, and uh, you know, it'd be wonderful if we can just talk about salvation. We won't have to talk about all these other things. But if you're going to retain a pure salvation and teach, continue to teach a pure salvation, you have to talk about the other things. Um, which, you know, the world and liberals and our uh, contemporary Christians like to call negative. But all the negatives have positive effects. So as we think about that tonight, I'm going to look at three things concerning the apostasy. First of all, uh, the apostasy uses the method of infiltration. If you notice in verse 4 again, it says, For there are certain men crept in 
unawares. Apostasy always comes in unawares, or they use the method of infiltration. The in unawares means to settle alongside, secretly, to be hid, you know, stealthily, very subtly. In Galatians 2.4, Paul talked about the false brethren brought in unawares when he went to Jerusalem with that council. You know, in Genesis 31.20, we have the idea, the Bible says that Jacob stole away unawares unto Laban. So, so they infiltrate, they, they filter in, they move in gradually or, or stealthily. And this is, this is how liberalism takes over churches, colleges, universities, and even government. You wonder why we're having such a problem with Islam? Because our government, the reason is because Obama, and this was in his first term, appointed over 150 Muslims government, high government places. So this is what we're dealing with. Why is England having such a problem with Islam? They can't seem to recognize because the mayor of London is a Muslim. They infiltrate. That's how Islam is taking over the world. They're, they're infiltrating important and prominent places. And this is exactly how apostates corrupt churches and corrupt Christianity and whatever they they can put their fingers into. David Cloud said, in, and he has a book uh, on the emerging church, which is all part of this. He said this: those who reject separatism feel that they they are only rejecting extremism, but in reality they are rejecting the God ordained means of protection from spiritual pollution. Unquote. And this is, this is how this all starts. You know, it doesn't, you, you wouldn't have a guy walk into here and start teaching that homosexuals can be Christians too. Or that, you know, it's, it's okay to have that older lifestyle. No, what you'd have is somebody come in and he starts subtly saying, you know, well, we don't need to take such a strong stand on music. We don't need to take such a strong stand. And he wouldn't say it that way. He just began teaching or, better yet, just not teaching those things. He, you know, the reason most churches, Baptist churches, are going that direction is because they no longer teach on standards of music, standards of holiness, standards of dress, uh, a stand for the King James Bible. They just don't teach it because this is what they say. It's divisive. It's divisive. And I guarantee you, that church, 20 years from now, won't be the same. Maybe less than that. That, that takes that philosophy. And so, it says these men are crept in unawares. And this is the philosophy of those, and this is how it begins. Um, some of you probably never heard these terms before, but there's a, there's a term called New Evangelicalism. Well, New Evangelicalism was born in 1948. And uh, uh, with connection with, a, with an address given by Harold J. Ockengay. And in that message, he said this, quote, While reaffirming the theological view of fundamentalism, this address repudiated its ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is what? Doctrine of what? The church. And its social theory. 
The Green call for a repudiation of separatism and the summons to social involvement. Neo-evangelicalism, different from fundamentalism, is in its repudiation of separatism and its determination to engage itself in the theological dialogue of the day. It had a new emphasis upon the application of the gospel to the sociological, political, and economic areas of life. Neo-evangelicals emphasized the restatement of Christian theology in accordance with the need of the times. You know what we call that now? You know, when we say, well, a preacher is preaching to fit the needs of the times, we call that seeker-friendly. You know, Warren Wearsby and, not Warren Wearsby, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and all these church growth gurus, you know, they, they send out questionnaires. What do people want in a church? And that's what they give them. Seeker-friendly. That's the idea here, really. He said the need of the time. So they're, they're going to tailor their message for the need of the times or tailor their doctrine for the need of the time. Uh, he, he goes on. He says the re-engagement in the theological debate, the recapture of denominational leadership. In other words, well, they want to take the denominations back that have been lost to liberalism. And the re- re-examination of theological problems. Now get this. Such as antiquity of man, the universality of the flood, and God's method of creation and others, unquote. Now, what he just said there is they're going to question and re-examine how old is mankind. Are we 6,000 years old or are we 6 billion years old? And they're going to question the, uh, the, 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 was the flood universal or worldwide or was it local? And the other thing they're going to do is they're going to question, you know, there's possibly maybe several ways or methods God used in creation. Remember what we were talking about, Ryan, on Wednesday night? People that say they're Christians and say that God used the Big Bang Theory to make the world. You know, and what you get is this, they, they promoted, you know, theistic, theistic evolution or day-age theories or or the gap theory. Day-age theory is that each day in, in the Genesis creation is a thousand years. Only problem with that, I think he made the plants and the trees on day two and the sun on day three. What would have happened to the plants till the thousand years of the first day were over before the sun came out? It all died, exactly right. No, you know, Exodus 20 very clearly says he made the earth in six days. So, so these are the things that are going to be rediscussed and promoted among enlightened scholars. You see, there's, there, there's an emphasis here. They're going to re-engage. Notice one of the things he said was the re-engagement in the theological debate. So they're going to let theologians, you know, they're repudiating ecclesiology, in other words, the doctrine of the church, that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. So they're repudiating the church, and they're going to appeal to theologians for what right and correct doctrine is. So there's a, and there's, there's a strong emphasis here on higher education and what we would call higher criticism. Which Paul called, by the way, this is nothing new. Paul called it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I think it's verse 20, science falsely so-called. That's what it is. 
See, so this is a rejection. This is what this really is. This whole idea here that Achenge is promoting is a rejection of verse three, that we earnestly contend for the faith. David Cloud again in his in this article said this quote: "Regardless of who coined the term new evangelical, it is certain that it described the mood of positivism." So we're going to be all positive and non-militancy that characterized that generation. Now, you know, a lot of people will have kind of they balk at that word militant. But the word militant really simply means vigorously active in the support of a cause. And according to verse three, we're to be vigorously active in the support of the defense of the faith. That's not a question. It's a command. You know, a, a militant Muslim is a Muslim who, who takes his Koran literally. That's what he is. And a militant Bible-believing Christian is somebody who takes the word of God literally. That's us. We take it literal. That is, is relevant for today and is to apply and rule our life. Um, you know, and he uses the word fundamentalism here. I don't, I don't consider myself part of fundamentalism, but I am fundamental in my beliefs. The word fundamental is a good word, but I don't. You know, fundamentalism was a, was a movement which tried to put together, and sometimes I may have a message, but it tried to put together all the conservatives of the Presbyterians and Methodists, and, and, and what you ended up doing was Baptists kind of compromising on baptism and the local church and that kind of thing. So, so the movement wasn't a good thing, but fun, the word fundamental, again, means serving as or being an essential part of a foundation or basis, a leading or primary principle. And, and for one to be fundamental, what it means is it requires a literal interpretation of Scripture. So, so if you are a fundamental uh, independent Baptist, you're a Baptist that takes the scriptures literally as they're written. And, and this thing, this new evangelicalism that these, these men promoted, uh, Billy Graham was one of the big mouthpieces, uh, is a rejection of that. They repudiated it. Um, and so... You know, and again, these men came in unawares. There's a, there's, the emphasis is here is a shift from the holiness of God to guess what? What do we always hear about? The love of God. Hey, God's love is, is determined by his holiness. Um. There's a rejection of the need of regeneration to social needs. That's why a lot of their missionaries go and teach school, teach the kids, people how to read and write, teach them how to grow things, how to farm, or, uh, you know, those kind of things. That's, that's their emphasis. It's not giving them the gospel. In fact, I remember, and I was told this, I never met the guy. I guess he's with the Lord now. But uh, he, he went to a uh, Mennonite church in the valley, and I had gone to a different Mennonite church, and I'd heard of this guy. His name was Mark Zook. Anyway, he, went, he uh, went to Mennonite Central Committee, which was the Mennonite's mission organization, 
and applied to go to New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, as a missionary. They asked him his purpose in going. He said to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would not send him. He was to go and convert these people. He was to go and teach them how to grow food and read and write and do social work. That's what they wanted him to do. So he didn't go with Mennonite Central Committee. He went with New Tribes Mission. But, but anyway, and it was, that's, you know. Um, but that's the idea here. Uh, there's a rejection of birthing churches to political activism. They get involved in causes, feeding the hungry children in Africa. You know, I feel sorry for starving people in Africa. But you know what? Feeding them isn't really solving the real problem. There's an old saying, an old proverb. Give a man a fish, and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. You see, what these people need is a new way of thinking. The new birth not only saves the soul, but it does, the, the word of God does teach us how to live, how to earn a living. The, the need there in Africa is a new heart. That's what the need is in America, a new heart. A new philosophy of life, which comes through the gospel. You know, Africa has more natural resources than any continent in the world. Why are they so backward? Well, they're just uncivilized. Why are they uncivilized? You know, there was a, uh, yeah, I can't even remember his name now. Who's the guy that evolution? No, uh, finder or the Darwin, Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin visited a a a uh, native tribe in South Af South America at one point during his lifetime, and he said of this primitive uh, South American tribe, it would take thousands of years for them to come up to modern standards. Well, I think it was like ten years later he went back. And he could not believe. I mean, the people were now clothed. They were working. I mean, they were, they were rapidly becoming civilized. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. A missionary got there. And they were converted and taught from the word of God. You know, they got a new, new heart, a new philosophy of life. That comes with a new birth. Um, and so, you know, so these are the changes that come about. So we see here, it is, first of all, it's, it's a method of infiltration. Secondly, it uses manners that are antiquated. Now notice in verse 4 again, it says, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. They were ordained of old. This isn't anything new. It's as old as... Mankind. I mean, when did we find the first departure from the truth? It was in the Garden of Eden. This isn't anything new. You know, when it says of old, it has the idea of long ago. Matthew eleven twenty one, 21, where the, the word is used again, it says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. So, so and it is prophesied 
that there would be such men. So this is nothing new. In fact, Enoch, if you look in verses 14 and 15, it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their ungodly or their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Um, so Enoch spoke of these kinds of people. In Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. So here you have, what you have here is the, the daughters of men, unsaved men, looking at these beautiful young ladies that, that the saved people have, and so they started taking them for wives. So it was intermarriage of the, un, the saved and the unsaved, and it corrupted the pure seed. And that's when God said, My spirit shall not always strive with men, but yet his days shall be 120 years. So he gave him 120 years to repent. You know, in Exodus 32, you have the children of Israel making a golden calf and saying, This be the gods that brought us out of Egypt. And then what they do? There was dancing, you know, lasciviousness, which is un unrestrained immorality. Um, which is what this leads to. Look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter mentions this. Peter mentions this in his second epistle. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, he says, But there were false prophets also among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, she shall privately bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feign words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Like I told one guy here just a week or so ago, I said, you know, religion is big business. They make merchandise of you. It's big business. And so, you know, their manners... Their, their ways are not new. They're antiquated. They're old. They just put new names. There's just new names and faces and words to it. Uh, and then thirdly, it is a message of incontinence. Notice verse 4 again. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God in lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The word incontinence or the word lasciviousness, they're very similar in meaning, has the idea of unrestrained lawlessness. And these men are characterized by lasciviousness, the word that is used there. It's a word that also refers to immorality. Uh, excess and lack of restraint, shameless conduct. Now go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. James 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members. You know, James is writing to a church here. And he says, where come these wars? 
he's fighting. It's just you've got lusts. Evil desires. You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight more, yet you have not because you ask not. You might say, and notice it said, you kill and desire to have. <laughs> there have been people killed in church fights. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulteresses. Notice this. He's not talking about physical adultery between a man and a woman. He's talking about a spiritual adultery. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoso therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So these lusts that are causing this church to war among themselves, it's spiritual adultery. In other words, they've cast off their first love. Just like Israel. God called Israel an adulterous wife. How'd that all come about? Well, because they forsook the Lord God and the proper temple worship. And, and, and you know, and Solomon had all these groves made to worship other gods. And, and you know, and the Manasseh brought in the, the gods of Damascus and made an altar to that god. And, and, you know, they had all these other gods. And he said, it's, it's, you're committing adultery. It's, it's spiritual lasciviousness, which... It ain't too long till the physical follows, as we shall see. In Titus 1.16, it says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient in every good work reprobate. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We see an example of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is really, this is exactly what the children of Israel did in Exodus chapter 32. There was a spiritual adultery. They, 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 you know, they divorced God, so to speak, and made themselves uh, golden calves and, and worshipped them. And then this physical adultery followed right on its heels. And, it's, and that's, that's what it talks about here in 1 Corinthians 10. It says, um, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Did all eat the same spiritual meat? Did all drink that same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye adulterers. You know, what did they lust? Well, they lusted the, gle the, the, the leeks and the, the onions and the garlic of Egypt. And, of course, the meats, all the meats. You know, they lost all of those things. He says in verse 7, Neither be ye idolaters, as some of them, as it is written, they people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they worshipped the golden calf, and they, they ate and drank, and then they rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed it, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them were also tempted and were destroyed of serpents, and so on. So that's what you have happening at the children of Israel in the wilderness. They, they had given themselves over to lasciviousness. And that's how God describes these apostates. They're leading people into lasciviousness. 
you know, fast forward a few years from 1948 when Harold Ockengay gave his speech and says we're going to repudiate separatism. We're going to repudiate ecclesiology. Dr. David Cloud again says, quote, in the course of establishing their respectability in the eyes of a wider society, the evangelicals have become harder and harder to distinguish from other people. Upward social mobility has made the old revivalistic taboos dysfunctional. The cocktails became increasingly difficult to refuse. Evangelical young people learned how to dance and openly grooved on rock music. And evangelical magazines and newspapers began reviewing plays and movies. Finally, in 1976, this is only 30 years, 28, there emerged a fellowship and information organization for practicing evangelical lesbians and gay men and their sympathizers, quote unquote. And now you have, now you have Christian swingers. Is that possible? It's about like having Christian rock and roll. That's not possible either. I mean, it's something they, they call it that, but you can't, it can't be Christian in rock and roll. You see, this has gone full course, and it's given itself over completely to lasciviousness in the flesh, not just in the spirit. Not just in spiritual, not just divorcing themselves from the true worship of God, but now they've brought these kind of, these fleshly lusts right into the church, and it's acceptable. You know, of course, you know, one of the first things is to learn how to dance. You know, the best definition I or, or this, uh, the danger of the dance I've ever read was what Tad Alexander wrote in his book, The, the Waldensians. And, and, and they and described it as this, quote, and this is what the Waldensians said, in the dance, the devil tempts, tempts by means of women in three ways, by touch, sight, and hearing. In the dance, God's Ten Commandments are broken. The hearts of men are intoxicated with temporal joys. They forget God. They utter nothing but falsehood and folly and abandon themselves to pride and cupidity, which means that cupidity means eager or excess desire. That's what dancing does. But a lot of people think it's innocent. It's not innocent. And of course... Now they term it, and you may have heard this term, the emerging church. And the emerging simply, the word emerging simply means rising from. Um, so this is the fruit. This is what happens when churches allow men to creep in unawares and don't earnestly contend for the faith. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2 verse 15. This goes familiar, but the apostle of love, who writes a lot about love, but he's also a champion of truth. 
And that love is governed by the truth. Verse, verse John 2, verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So, you know, we must not love the things of this world. And, and one of the tenets of this idea of rejecting separation of the Bible is we want to fit in with society. You know, I remember reading, and I have a book by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was Presbyterian. It's a book of uh, illustrations, some really good illustrations, and I've used them many times. But in his early days, he was considered a fundamentalist. In other words, he was a separatist. He taught Bible separation. You know, I don't know what happened to him, but, but there was a point in time where he came out in a message and repudiated 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses, let's go over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And this is what they do. They spiritualize it, or just, just um, you know, they don't take it literal. 2 Corinthians 6, where, where Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, and he says in verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, what communion hath light with darkness, what concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath the, he that believeth with infidel? And you see, if they're going to re-engage in dialogue to, to win back the denominations, guess what they have to do? Lay aside this verse, these verses. Because that commands us, you know, although these, are, these are, are things for a local church, but that commands us we can't join in fellowship with. And so they lay them aside. And, of course, they've laid aside the doctrine of the local church, too, that the local church has the authority. Now, instead, you're just in universities and camps with authority. You know, that's one of the real problems of colleges. Young people go to, go to a college, and guess what determines their doctrine for life? or their allegiance is to the college and not to the word of God or the church, as God said. And so, you know, we, have, we, are, we are commanded, as Jude says in verse 3, he says we are to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Beware. You know, as David Cloud said, as I started this message, those who reject separatism feel that they are only rejecting extremism. So they would call us extremists. Why do you have to be so dogmatic? Can't you just give a little? So those, they feel they're only rejecting extremism, but in reality they are rejecting the God-ordained means of protection from spiritual pollution. Eugene Peterson said this, 
in his commentary on Jeremiah, he had a commentary entitled Run with the Horses. And he, and he describes the people of Jeremiah's day as if it was our own. And he said this, The puzzle is, why are so many people living so badly? Not so wickedly, but inanely. The word inanely means lacking sense or significance, or it's silly, it's empty, it's vain. Not cruelly, but stupidly. There's little to admire and less to imitate in the people who are so prominent in our culture. We have celebrities, but not saints. Famous entertainers amuse a, notion of bored, a nation of bored insomniacs. Infamous criminals act out the aggressions of timid conformists. Petulant and sport athletes play games vicariously for lazy and apathetic spectators. People, aimless and bored, amuse themselves with trivia and trash. Neither the adventure of goodness nor the pursuit of righteousness gets headlines. Yeah, it's a good description. of. He said, modern man is bleak business, says Tom Howard. To our chagrin, we discover that the Declaration of Autonomy has issued not in a race of free masterly men, but rather in a race that can be described by its poets and dramatists only as bored, vexed, frantic, embittered, and sniffling. This condition has produced an odd phenomenon. Individuals who live trivial lives and then engage in evil acts in order to establish significance for themselves. No other culture has been eager to reward either nonsense or wickedness. And he goes on and says, Is there a need for a prophet preaching in our generation? A prophet lets people know who God is and what he is like, what he says and what he is doing. A prophet wakes up from our sleepy complacency so that we get we see the great and stunning drama that is our experience and then pushes us onto the stage playing our parts whether we think we are ready or not. A prophet angers us by rejecting our euphemisms and ripping off our disguises, then dragging our heartless attitudes and selfish motives out into the open where everyone sees them for what they are. A prophet makes everything and everyone seem significant and important. Important because they are significant to God, a prophet makes it difficult to continue with a sloppy or selfish life. Unquote. You see, a real prophet of God is going to earnestly contend for the faith. And he's going to challenge his people to earnestly contend for the faith. Your God wants us to contend. That doesn't mean we're contentious, but it does mean we vigorously, vigorously, are vigorously active in the support of our cause. And that's the furtherance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the commandments, you know, it isn't just, you know, a lot of people say, well, if you would ask the average Christian what's the great commandment or great uh, commission, they would say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And that, that, they would stop right there. But that's not, that's not all it is. It's to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So what that entails is not only evangelizing them, but discipling them and establishing churches. That's the practice taught in the book of Acts. That's what Paul did. And so when we earnestly contend for the faith, we're not talking about just the doctrines of salvation. We're talking about all the commands of God. That's why Paul said in Acts 20, 
I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Might God help us as a church to take heed to the whole counsel of God. Let's pray.